Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Gore, Group CEO here at EMG Health. Today, I'm joined by a thought leader, a long-term friend of the podcast, and a contributor to the Gold magazine, Paul Sims. He's a pharma provocateur, and he's also the chief executive of Impatient Health. So many of you will know Paul from his long-standing tenure as the CEO of I4 Pharma, which of course is now part of the Reuters events, um, and it's a post that he left last year after 17 years in the job. Since then, he's been busy working on some new projects and some, some ideas, while still remaining a leading voice in all things pharma. So without further ado, let's find out what he's been up to over the last 10 months or so. No doubt he's had some provoking perspectives and opinions to share with us today. Hello, Paul, and thanks for joining us. How are you today? Thanks so much, Spencer. A pleasure to be back. A uh, pleasure to be here as always. Um, yeah, very happy to give you a, a quick update. Um, I guess uh, I, I've been trying to establish the, the um, I guess you could say, the consultancy for the weird and wonderful. Um, my, <laughs> my, my position in the world, I think, is to focus on the unusual projects, the, the, the stuff that um, people have never done before. So, you know, if people have got uh, a, a new CRM system that they want to put in place, there's probably uh, a thousand other people that you should talk to before you talk to me. But if you're trying to create a new company without a CRM system, then that's maybe when you can give me a call uh, because um, I'm, I'm uh, developing a lot of uh, techniques, spending a lot of time in terms of sort of almost being a think tank and, and understanding the future, looking at other industries in order to be able to um, to, to help companies figure out uh, how to do things in a new way. Uh, and uh, I'm also um, considered sort of an independent a lot of the time. So I'm also helping to build sort of industry coalitions and, and, and groups like that to, to, to help us uh, tackle problems collectively as opposed to just as individual companies, which, as you can imagine, is a great opportunity that we have uh, following the pandemic. So I'm enjoying myself. That's the main thing. Brilliant. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's, it's um, one of our values at EMJ is to be different. So I love the idea of doing all of that stuff. I'm definitely different. Take <laughs> that box multiple times every day. <laughs> is there anything else you've been doing over the last year you want to share with us? Or, or should we move on to some of your uh, forecasts and predictions? Um, there's many, many different things that I've been doing over the last year. But um, I think we should get straight into it because otherwise I shall bore your listeners with ran random stories. Um, I do, of course, love, as you've already pointed out, to be provocative and um, uh, you'll see me uh, taking part in various things and, and writing a lot, especially on uh, LinkedIn. Um, so, so if anybody likes what I have to say, happy to continue the conversation there. Brilliant. And I, I love I love reading your LinkedIn posts. So yeah, great <laughs> stuff. So so I, I you know, and, and and quite often I see your LinkedIn posts and that's where I see some of your predictions and your forecasts. Um some of these could be considered quite bold, um and and can I even say maybe a little outlandish? Um yep. you know, what with, with the chance of all of them coming true is perhaps quite unlikely. So so why do you put yourself in the position to 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 stand out and 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 you know prove yourself to be wrong quite often what's the reason behind doing all of that <laughs> very nicely put um yeah i uh, i do um i think well part of it is is the joy of doing it of course and and it's almost a challenge to myself to to to, to, to be able to live up to that but um the probably the biggest reason i do it is because i want to set an, an example that um in this 
pandemic-oriented world, I think the only certainty is uncertainty. And in such an uncertain world, the winners are the ones who simply try and are willing to experiment. So I want to sort of almost show people that you can put stuff out there. You can you can you can uh, maybe uh, demonstrate what the future could look like, not necessarily what it absolutely will look like, but what it could look like. And you won't be killed in that process. You know, you'll actually yeah. incite the right debate. So. You know, Eisenhower said plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And let's be honest with you, plans are mainly figments of our imagination. They are all based on what we think could happen. So it's really important to know what is possible. It's really important to have um, visions of the future. Uh, And it's really important to be able to share those visions if we're ever going to align the many currently very unaligned stakeholders that there are in, in, in healthcare. So I think it's really, really important to put uh, potential opportunities out there and ideas out there and be prepared to be wrong. I am fully prepared to be shot down. Please do feel free to shoot me down, either yourself, <laughs> Spencer, or anyone else listening. So, uh, yeah, that's what I do. No, I think that's great. I, I, I've always been a believer that in, you know, it's better to have tried and failed than to have never tried at all. And, you know, we were talking earlier and, and I said my favorite quote is, is an old Nelson Mandela quote where he says, I never lose, I either win or learn. And if you if you don't try these things, you're you're never going to win or learn. And you've got to you've got to get things wrong to learn yeah. from the mistakes and how you can get them better and right the next time. So, yeah, totally agree with all of that. Brilliant. Yeah, actually, one thing uh, you asked me what I'm what I'm doing. You you might have to edit this out, Spencer, because I'm going to make say a naughty word now. But um, uh, something that exists a lot in um, uh, the startup community is this idea of a fuck up night, uh, yeah. where you basically go up there and you're willing to share your mistakes. And I've actually really want to bring this to pharma somehow because i think just as you said we do actually learn more from our mistakes often than our successes and the average conference talk or article typically includes lots of bold claims of how wonderful you've been and i think you can learn more for when you when you talk about where you've screwed screwed it all up so yeah don't know how it's going to happen yet but um (laughs) watch this space we'll hopefully see something similar happen for our industry soon that, that would be fantastic. And yeah, I, I remember reading a book a few years ago by Matthew Saeed, uh, Black Box Thinking, where, and, and it's that whole concept is pilots learn from their mistakes. They get an indemnity from uh, mistakes if they admit to them straight away because they, then they can learn from them. Whereas in, in, in surgery, uh, in healthcare, people try and cover up their mistakes quite often because they're, they're fearful of, uh, of the following lawsuit that may come. And, and so people aren't learning from the mistakes other people are making, which is... Yeah, absolutely. I read a book about um, innovation recently, and it uh, talks about how nuclear power is the least innovative industry. Why? Because you simply don't get that chance to do trial and error. And yeah. so many of the nuclear disasters that are actually happening modern, we've actually just had the 10-year anniversary of the, the, the Japanese uh, Fujisaka, yeah. Fuji I think it was, um, disaster. And the reason is because that nuclear plant was based on 1960s technology that simply hasn't been updated since then, despite the many, many ideas and plans that could have been implemented. You just don't get the chance no. in this heavily red tape stricken industry to innovate and try. And unfortunately, with every uh, problem that happens in healthcare, we end up taking a similar type of reaction, i.e., making it harder to be more experimental. I think it's a big problem. We could end up shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, it, it is. We could talk about this for hours because you know, if you crash, crash an airplane, there's pretty dire consequences there as well. But they've adapted it brilliantly, so it's it's mm. it's interesting to see how you can adapt to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's let's pick up on a couple of these predictions you've made back in January. 
So sure. the first one is called um, a pharma company buys the consumer. So what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, not not immediately clear, is it? Um, well, the starting point for this is the, sometimes when I think about our industry and how we've kind of pivoted towards specialty medicine, amazing science, amazing, incredible things at what we can do now. Some of the cell and gene therapy is amazing. But it's it's tough. We're in a situation where the public purse has been run dry by the pandemic. In fact, global debt has basically been doubled since the start of 2020 uh, across most nations. So um, we're in a situation where we can't really afford so much of this amazing science anymore. The way I think of it is almost as if the entire pharma industry is trying to create a Ferrari. Can you imagine if the whole car industry was trying to create Ferraris? You know, Ferraris are fantastic cars. You know, they're, they're obviously, you know, got a market. They've got a certain type of buyer, um, but they're not for everybody. Not everybody yeah. can afford them. Not everybody needs one. Not everybody has the hunger for sort of incredible performance. So whilst it's hard to say that I would want to take anything away from some of the amazing science and the uh, diseases that are being cured, literally curative diseases as a result, I just don't think that we can sustain it. I think that we're going to have a difficult situation a few years from now when, you know, we as an industry have been kind of gearing up towards this this new dawn of these advanced therapies and hoping that, you know, we'll be able to afford them. And I, I almost wonder whether it's ethical to be thinking that, 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 the, that the world can afford them. And I want to see more innovation back in the mainstream areas, back in chronic disease, back in the sort of disease areas where we haven't seen that much... Um, that much uh, uh, innovation, relatively so, uh, for, for quite some time. Uh, and I think that it's the people outside of R&D that are going to be able to pivot most quickly and actually find some of that value. It's not necessarily the folks in R&D. So I guess what I'm saying ultimately is um, it needs to be down to those of us not in R&D to feel the responsibility for innovation. We need to be able to innovate in the core areas. I think that's how we're going to sustain our industry over the next few years because we aren't just going to be able to focus on these high-margin medicines for our future, um, valuable though they are. Um, you know, uh, not everybody can afford a Ferrari. So, um, and I, and but, but I, have, you, have you hit the nail on the head there by by saying it's the high-value ones? Is, you know, these companies, these big pharma companies, are all nearly all big limited companies big plcs mm. that's what the shareholders are, are demanding so how, how do you balance that with doing what's right for the shareholder with what's right for the for the consumer as you I think say ultimately spencer it will come down to being the same thing i think that you know margin and um incredible science has been driven by the shareholder in the past because we thought we'd been able be able to afford these these incredible medicines uh and now um, margin is going to be squeezed on some of those areas, and the new opportunities will be back in the the the, the mainstream areas that I that I mentioned, because there's so much value to be found outside of just the pure medicine itself. There's so it's so incredible how much pot unfulfilled potential there is in our industry when it comes to you know simply being able to give somebody a personalized dose of the right medicine, even if the medicine yeah. itself is not personalized. Um, simply being able to understand um, something about the individual taking the medicine or even the doctor prescribing it before we sort of push forward with what, we, what we're offering. Uh, and I think that the greatest value coming to the pharmaceutical industry over the next few years will be from a system perspective rather than from a medicine perspective. Not saying that we should somehow stop investing in new medicines, obviously. Just saying that um, 
we need to pivot in terms of our attitude, in terms of where we place our, our bets for the future, because that's absolutely where we can see it. And actually, it's already happening. Look at the incredible investment in digital health, which yeah. obviously has only increased as a result of the pandemic. It seems like every day there's a multi-million dollar new investment in, in some form of um, non-medical solution, or when I say non-medical, I mean non-therapeutic solution. Um, and, uh, and and people clearly outside of the pharma community um, believe that digital therapeutics, digital health, um, you know, different ways of tackling a disease have legs. And um, I think pharma's playing catch up. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the agility of those sorts of companies will, will have to be adopted by the big pharma companies and that will therefore make them much more efficient. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah. agree. So, so another thing that you predict is, is something called unconscious wellness. Yeah, now that sounds a little paradoxical to me. So can you talk me through that concept? You're right, it does. And I suppose that's why I use that phrase cheekily, um, as I did. Um, but um, <clears throat> here I'm thinking about uh, how consumers are beginning to, um, you know, instead of buying goods, they're actually doing so in a more passive manner. The, if you buy clothing, you might have um, adopted one of these um, new services that actually sends clothes to you on a regular basis. You choose what you like and don't like and send the remainder back. Um, there's certainly a lot of um, people who are now consuming food and groceries on a more passive basis, being sent things, being able to fiddle with you know your preferences every week to adjust what you want and what you don't want. And for an algorithm to start learning what it is that you might like and what you might not like. It's not necessarily humans that are behind these decisions uh, all of the time. Uh, So, you know, we're faced in our modern lives with having to make millions of decisions. And, um, you know, it's overwhelming, even in lockdown, the number of decisions we have to make. And I think that there's a certain subset of our communities that are willing to let a lot of these decisions happen to them kind of semi-automatically and that's happening across retail across um, so many different aspects of our lives one big aspect i think is the rise of tiktok um, which as you may know if you've ever used it it's a passive way of consuming video you basically get given the video uh, without even requesting it and the algorithm learns what you like and don't like contrast this to youtube which only 10 years ago we thought was pretty innovative and is now being usurped by this this new player so, you know, this, this, this phenomenon is, is young and it's got place to go. And I see absolutely no reason why this kind of algorithmic commerce, as I call it, e-commerce, couldn't also leak into algorithmic wellness, a wellness. And obviously, as we have our data coming off us in, in multiple different ways, whether it be using our Peloton bike or wearing our Fitbit or simply looking at our own health app on our phone, um, we we will increasingly start to allow an algorithm to to make individual and personalized selections for us, not just in terms of exercise, but also in terms of how we consume products, nutrition, and uh, and of course um, that can leak into drugs. It'll start off with vitamins and OTC type things, um, of course, at first, but but it can go beyond that. So uh, I just think that. Um, Right now, we think we've we've achieved something when we've been able to give patients their data back, and you know that's better than not giving their data back. But I think there's so much potential in being able to give people not just their data, but some actual actionable information, or even something passive, uh, you know, some some nudging in the right direction. Because I mean, how often, Spencer, do you really look at the graphs on your health app on your phone? 
Yeah. Um, I, I never do. And I think only a small number of people ever will do. I discovered recently that the distance between steps that I have is 73 centimeters. Now, that is obviously completely useless information. What I want to know is, you know, what to do with that kind of thing. You know, maybe maybe there's information out there which which could actually help me. Um, but but I'll never know it if I just get given the raw graph. So yeah. it's just an evolution, but I think one that we in our industry should at least be aware of, if not actually help to pioneer. Yeah. Now, that's, that's fascinating. It reminded me of a couple of different things there. That You, you talk about the, making those decisions. Uh, the story I remember is, is uh, Steve Jobs wore that same black top every single day because he, he was a big believer that your, your brain only has the capacity to make X amount of decisions a day. And yeah. you don't want to waste them on, on decisions like, what am I going to wear today? You want to use them on really important groundbreaking decisions. And so having that, 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 that uh, sort of algorithm or AI that can send, send you to, get to, to, to make you do the right stuff without even thinking about it just means you're free to use your brain in other ways. And it's a, there's, a, there's a concept called habit stacking, where if you want to start doing something, you know, if, you, if, if you want to go for a run at 6 o'clock in the morning, rather than just setting your alarm clock at 6 o'clock in the morning, you get you get your trainers out and your kit out and, and put it next to the bed. So you, you've, your habit is, well, I'm going to get up at six. Well, the next habit is, I'm, I'm going to put my gym stuff on because it's already next to the bed and it's making it as easy as possible. And if you can use AI to to do that with your wellness, yeah, uh, and, and and stack it like that, then that can only be a good thing. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I haven't tried that um, that one about getting up and doing some exercise. I might have to steal that idea. <laughs> um, so that's a pretty good one. But you know what the other funny thing is, Spencer, is that the business model around this is actually a good thing as well because all of these sort of algorithmic businesses, they end up having a sort of subscription-based business model. Yeah. And that's actually what the market loves. The, lo- yeah. the market the market um, rewards subscription bases a huge amount more than, you know, one-off transaction-based based companies. And we in Pharma are always trying to increase patient adherence for the same reason. But, yeah. you know, if you can proactively get a patient to subscribe to their own healthcare proactively... The market is going to reward us. Um, look at a company like Adobe, which was just about selling software. Now it's all about subscribing to their software. And you know, what, since they've done that, basically in the last ten years or so, um, recurring revenue has gone from ten percent to ninety percent of company sales. But the valuation has gone from four times earnings to eighteen times earnings in, in right. that same period. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Steve Jobs. Apple is another company that's pivoted towards services recently. And they've gone from 10 to 22% um, in terms of uh, uh, the multiple of, of, of the, sorry, 15 to 30, uh, 15 times revenues to 30 times revenues. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, Disney, a company that should have been destroyed in the pandemic when they closed all the cinemas and all the theme parks, they've done really well. Why? Because of Disney Plus, you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, um, the market loves it, the people love it. Come on, farmer, get on with it. Yeah. Well, 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 interestingly enough, you talk about these non-healthcare companies. Mm. One, one of one of the things you talk about is Amazon winning the healthcare. Sorry, Amazon wins healthcare as a side gig. So we've we've heard a lot about Amazon since the beginning of the year and and the way they're moving into healthcare. How, yeah. how do you, how do how do you see that playing out in your mind? Yeah. Well, um, the funny thing about Amazon is that it it really puts all of its eggs in the Amazon Prime basket. I mean, if you think about all of the um, the video stuff that they do, they're not actually asking for extra money for those for those services. The Prime Video service, in other words, they offer that entire 
service that is, you know, a rival to Netflix in many ways. They're offering it effectively for free um, just to make sure that you continue as an, as an Amazon Prime subscriber. And I think that what you're going to see is that Amazon adds care and healthcare, not necessarily to make a big pile of cash, um, initially at least, um, but simply to keep you within that Amazon ecosystem and to ensure that you retain your your Prime membership. You almost can't live without Amazon yeah. um, going forward. So that's why I use this phrase as a side gig, because it's going to basically featureize the entire healthcare industry. It's going to just become a bolt-on to, to their core uh, offering. And, um, and I think that that makes it a very interesting proposition because it means that they're not even trying to make money out of it. And that's actually what's going to defeat so many competitors who, of course, require that margin to survive. Yeah. Uh, Amazon's always managed to train its investors to not expect a profit. Uh, and um, they can effectively, I mean, their sort of secret source, secret weapon is this almost free cash that they have as a result of that to invest in new stuff. Uh, and I just think the company actually probably knows more about you than Google does. Um, and they, they, they've really built out an ecosystem that's going to be very helpful, if that's how you want to call it. Some people might call it scary. <laughs> um, helpful in terms of understanding you and being able to um, help you with your healthcare. It, it, it's a bit of both, isn't it? It is a bit scary the way they know everything about you, and all of a sudden these adverts pop up when you've not even looked for something you've just talked about it. Or <laughs> we've all had that, haven't we? <laughs> I, I was talking. I, I was talking to my colleague the other day, and he said he, he's now got his car insurance for Amazon purely because it was it was a much easier thing to do because he mm. does everything on Amazon these days, and it, it, yeah. it's going to happen, isn't it? It's gonna Amazon doesn't even have to be the cheapest anymore; it just has to be the convenient one because you can't be bothered to go and look at ten other websites to check if something's yeah. cheaper. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And and, and so you, you talked about being cheeky earlier. Uh, the last one I wanted to touch on was um, you say pharma finally takes its mask off, uh, which definitely sounds a bit cheeky. So so, so what's that all about? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I think this is a positive development. I think I mean for years I've been banging the drum that our industry leaders need to not just talk about the present or the recent past, which is all they ever talk about. But talk about the future. We work in possibly the most emotive industry of all. And I believe that our leadership should have a line within their job description, which says that they should inspire others as to what's possible in healthcare, that um, we should humanize our companies. We've all been always considered this kind of opaque, unfriendly, hiding behind the corporate logo, unwilling to engage, unwilling to show our human side industry. And I think that's a, a real shame because I happen to know a lot of the people in this industry and they're pretty sound individuals and yeah. driven often for very good reasons to you know bring real health and real experience to a large portion of the population. So um, it's absolutely critical, I think, that um, we, we improve our communication in our industry. And what I say when I say pharma removes its mask, I'm actually saying well done to a few people. Um, I think about Pfizer, for example, which is a company I think that has historically been pretty opaque. But when they released their, um, their COVID-19 vaccine, they did so in a very human and transparent way. I mean, most of us got the news via, you know, proud employees sharing it by social yeah. media and, and 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 almost by sort of hearsay as opposed to the sort of typical black and white corporate press release. Uh, and ever since that period, they've been trying to humanize 
this rollout and give a lot of the stories behind it, stories during it. So um, I actually contacted Pfizer at one point to see if I could um, help them with their communication. They said they're in the process of producing three separate documentaries where they'd allowed the cameras into the into the labs and into the uh, working practices of, of the people on the front lines just to try and make sure that story came out. What's yeah. happened as a result of that? Well, a big lowering in the vaccine hesitation rates and a higher take-up than we actually expected because we saw that there were humans behind this and it was very genuine. So this stuff matters. You know, This stuff is in many ways as important as the efficacy of the medicine. Being able to communicate here is, again, another win-win-win situation. It's a win for the for the person who are, who's listening to the message, as long as that message is authentic. It's a win for the pharma company because they can actually um, earn from this situation. And it's a win for society generally because it just increases that trust. Apparently, trust in politicians has fallen since the start of the pandemic, but risen amongst companies, which is an unheard of result considering previously the trend line, particularly with large companies, has been going down and down and down and down for, for years. So um, it's almost like corporations have to become the new trusted citizens. And I think that the only way they can do that is to show their faces uh, a little bit more. And as I say, remove their mask. So I'm all for it. I, I totally agree with that. I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position here and, and you know, being able to host this this podcast. I've, I've been to a number of the I4 Pharma events, and you see these these key opinion leaders and these pharma execs stand up and deliver what's a, a very corporate message on, on occasion. Mm-hmm. And then you invite them onto something like this, like like we're doing now, and have a conversation. And you realise that they're just humans, like everyone else, and that they, as you said, they're doing the job for the right reasons. And and corporate has, has, you know, has almost stopped them showing this side of them for fear that they'll, you know, they'll. I don't know, appear vulnerable or whatever it is. But when you when you see that vulnerable side to them, you buy into it a lot more. And you and you, as you say, you, you you see that the trust in people going up because of because they're doing that. So it, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, it's a really weird thing because I have this very same conversation with people working in corp comms, and they <clears throat> I expected them to you know just tell me to shut up, <laughs> but they so many of the time, so much of the time, they actually completely agree, but they kind of feel like they're in this fear stranglehold with with their top executives where it's just this cultural thing which stops anybody uh, attempting to sort of step out of line because of fear of, you know, I don't know, being shot, you know, yeah. literally raising your head above the parapet kind of stuff. And um, maybe this this pandemic has been a catalyst. You know, again, we've shown that, when you t- show a more human side, um, you don't get shut down. You actually get the quite quite the opposite, and it's worth it. It's worth it. Right now, people think it's not worth it to, to to raise their head. Maybe we can show that it is worth it because, again, both from a value point of view and from a social point of view, it um, it, it it generates returns. So um, I'm all for it. I actually have this um, little saying that I like to use. I call it the four A's, which is um, Ambition, you start with ambition. That drives attention, naturally, because it's interesting. That then um, drives the accountability, because once you've got the attention, you have to sort of um, do do right. Yeah. And that's what then drives the action. So if you stand up and say, I'm going to cure cancer, I'm going to you know, fly to the moon, as was the famous example, I'm going to do something very bold and big and be willing to talk about the future, be willing to talk about your own passion behind it, that naturally drives the attention, which is the scary bit at the moment, but that's what actually makes you more accountable. And then that's what actually makes you hit the hit the goal at the end of the day. So ambition drives action, ultimately. 
Love it. Absolutely love that. The four A's. I'll be using that definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, 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 we talk about creating our gold medal winners at EMJ, and that's definitely something that will help. There you go. So, there you go. That's pretty similar. Um, but, you know, we all know that to win a gold medal, you have to stick your head out a little bit. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But thank you, Paul, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. No problem. Uh, as always, it's fascinating to hear your insights. Um, and, and I'm sure the the audience find that fascinating as well. So thank you for joining us. As I said at the beginning, Spencer, a pleasure as always. Really hope that uh, what you're doing and the uh, the organisation keeps going from strength to strength because um, looks like you've been doing pretty well on your side too. We, we've been we've, we, we've been very fortunate this year. So yeah, we're, we're, we're in a great, great position. Thank you. So, so to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us this week and do tune in next week for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you very much and goodbye for now. 